Previously on Mac Folklore Radio. From wolf at wheaties.ai.mit.edu to comp.sys.mac. Subject, Macintosh ROM Sources. June 7, 1989. A guy here at the MIT AI Lab got a disk in the mail with no return address. It contained a README file, included here, the TeachText application, and a StuffIt archive containing some source code. The listing of the file names in the archive are included after the text of the README file. Makes for very interesting reading. Quote, May 22, 1989. The file called ROM source StuffIt contains the complete assembly language source to both Color QuickDraw and all the hardware Equate files for the various Macintosh's ROMs. The files have been twice encrypted using StuffIt 1.5.1. The password is source. The next mailing will consist of the complete source to the hierarchical filing system and all the device drivers. Over several weeks, we will distribute the entire source to the Macintosh ROM as well as the source to System Software 6.0.3, Finder 6.1, and AppleTalk 2.0. System 7.0 will be distributed as soon as we secure a copy of it. Our objective at Apple is to distribute everything that prevents other manufacturers from creating legal copies of the Macintosh. As an organization, the new Prometheus League has no ambition beyond seeing the genius of a few Apple employees benefit the entire world, not just dissipated by Apple corporate through litigation and ill will. Anyone interested in directly receiving our next mailing should place a classified ad sometime during the month of July in the Bay Area Computer Currents or Mac Week with the word New Prometheus along with their address. At that time, you may make specific requests for sources that you have interest in obtaining. Signed, the New Prometheus League, Software Artists for Information Dissemination. Macworld, September 1990. The Iconoclast by Stephen Levy. Code and Dagger. Have you forgotten about the new Prometheus League? The FBI hasn't. One afternoon, not too long ago, I was sitting in my office, at peace with the world, feeling like a solid citizen, when I received the first of two rather unsettling phone calls from Agent Joe Fallon of the Queens, New York field office of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Agent Fallon began by insisting that he had spoken to me six months previously and that I had referred him to my lawyer. Now, this is the sort of thing one tends to remember. But hey, maybe it was one of those amnesia things. So I asked him for my lawyer's name, hoping that might jog my memory. Agent Fallon suddenly retreated from his assertion that we had previously spoken. Maybe, he offered, it was some other Stephen Levy. But, by the way, could I tell him if I had any knowledge of the new Prometheus group? Or was I in possession of any materials stolen from Apple Computer? Or did I know of anyone who was? Now, of course, I knew about New Prometheus. After all, it's part of my job to keep track of the bizarre things that happened around Apple Computer, a place that would keep Ripley supplied with items for a month of Sundays. This particular outrage had occurred in spring 1989. Unmarked computer disks were sent to various publications, including Mac Week, Computer Currents, 
and InfoWorld, as well as to software entrepreneur Mitch Kapoor and a scientist at MIT's Artificial Intelligence Lab. They were accompanied by a letter signed by the New Prometheus League, Software Artists for Information Dissemination. The letter contained some blather about the League's intention of seeing the genius of a few Apple employees benefit the entire world, not just dissipated by Apple corporate through litigation and ill will. When these recipients opened the disk and saw that it indeed appeared to be Macintosh source code, it turned out to be Apple's color quickdraw routines, they called Apple and sent in the disks. The theft, quite understandably, bent some minds in the boardrooms of Cupertino, since Apple's apparent corporate function is to jealously guard and shamelessly cash in on the innovations it made in the early 80s, most of them embodied in the Macintosh source code. Not that I knew anything about who did it. I explained to Agent Fallon that I was merely a journalist and even spelled out the name of this magazine for him. It seemed news to him that there were magazines for this sort of thing. All I knew of the hard facts of New Prometheus were things I read in the papers. His response was to repeat his questions to me, almost as if reading off a list. I wondered if this was a failure of communication. I repeated my non-involvement and thought that was the end of it. A scant two weeks later, however, Agent Fallon was back on the phone, wanting to know if I was ready to share further information. Maybe he figured I had cracked in the interim. In any case, I had no news. But I did have some questions for him, like why he was calling me. Somehow your name came up, he said, not fully satisfying my curiosity on the matter. Well then, why was the FBI so active now in pursuing the case a year after the theft? According to Agent Fallon, this was a significant case of ITSP, Interstate Transportation of Stolen Property, and the FBI was extremely interested. I can equate this with a national secret, he said with some urgency. If a spy were to come by this code, Fallon explained, he might use it to break into the Macintosh computer and steal the secrets within it. Well, I countered humbly, it doesn't exactly work that way, and I proceeded to explain a few things about how personal computers worked. By this time, I thought Agent Fallon and I were getting to be buddies. Unhappily, this camaraderie was cut short when he asked if I would supply my date of birth. I had the feeling that it wasn't to send me a greeting card. It was, he explained, to see if I had a criminal record. Like I said, these were unsettling phone calls. Did Ephraim Zimblis Jr. start this way? In days to come, I learned that I was far from the only unlikely source contacted by the Bureau. It seems that around the country, many others had similar experiences. Among these was Mitch Kapoor, one of the recipients of the code. He was interviewed a year ago. At that time, he was shown a list of names and asked if any of them were hackers. The session had a surrealistic quality and was profoundly disturbing, Kapoor recalls. It seemed obvious to me they didn't have a clear sense of the technology. There was such a lack of understanding that the effort to investigate wouldn't bear fruit. They were lost in cyberspace. 
More recently, around the time I was interviewed, John Perry Barlow, who writes about technology when he's not writing lyrics for The Grateful Dead, received a visit at his Pinedale, Wyoming home from one special Agent Baxter. Agent Baxter didn't know a ROM chip from a vice grip when he arrived, wrote Barlow in an account he posted on the online service called The Well. So much of that time was spent trying to educate him on the nature of the thing which had been stolen, or whether stolen was the right term for what had happened to it. After I showed him some actual source code, gave a demonstration of email in action, and downloaded a file from the well, he took to rubbing his face with both hands, peering up over his fingertips and saying, It sure is something, isn't it? My eight-year-old knows more about these things than I do. Barlow also reports that Agent Baxter told him some startling information, rather misinformation, about the Hackers' Conference, a yearly meeting of wizard-level computer programmers instituted after the publication of my book, Hackers, in 1984. The FBI seemed convinced that this annual conclave provided a key to computer terrorism. It was not merely a spirited gathering of technology creators exchanging new ideas, as we thought, but, as Barlow quoted Baxter, a gathering of computer outlaws with likely connections to, and almost certainly sympathy with, the new Prometheus League. Barlow also notes that Baxter consistently referred to the group as the New Prosthesis League. In addition, the agent asserted that known hacker conference attendee John Draper, a notorious former phone freaker known as Captain Crunch, was the CEO of the computer firm and Star Wars contractor Autodesk. This would be news to Autodesk's John Walker, whose firm specializes in CAD software and not deadly laser beams. However, Walker, along with other potential shady characters like Nolan Bushnell, Stephen Wolfram, and science fiction writer Werner Vinge, was at the most recent Hackers Conference. It gets wilder. A former Apple programmer named Grady Ward says that he was told that the stolen code was now filtering back to communist enemies of America through the Toshiba Electronics Company and also through John Draper. For the record, there has been no evidence released linking this company or that man to the crime. It was an incredible story, says Ward. It wouldn't even make a good novel. They said Draper was going to release the code and tip the international balance of power. The Nature of the Crime Though Apple's spokesperson Chris Escher says that the company is cooperating with the FBI, and that's literally all he will say about the case, apparently the cooperation does not extend to educating the FBI on the nature of what was stolen, or even cluing the poor floundering agents in on the most rudimentary facts about personal computers. Part of the problem seems to lie in the FBI's attitude toward the case. Agent Stephen Cook, while refusing to comment directly on the progress of the case, put it succinctly. This isn't a technology investigation, it's interstate theft. That may be the legal charge, but the theft of source code involved in New Prometheus is quite a different matter from hijacking a truck or robbing a bank. Software is a much trickier object than swag or money. It can move in elusive ways, 
and therefore, access to protected software is a technically complicated matter, and the problem of the criminal's motive requires an even deeper understanding. In order to understand and ultimately apprehend the perpetrator, one must realize that this particular crime seems motivated not by greed or maliciousness, but by a peculiar attitude toward technology in general and the role of Apple Computer in particular. Anyone familiar with the history of John Draper would realize that the new Prometheus crime has nothing in common with Captain Crunch's phone freaking. One has to feel some sympathy for the agents here. It's a terrible burden to have to solve this rather bizarre ideological crime without being steeped in the lore of Silicon Valley. J'accuse Unfortunately, if the investigation is poorly handled, innocent people may suffer. So far, the FBI has directly accused, though filed no charges against, at least three men. There seems to be no hard evidence against any of them. One was Chuck Farnham, the kind of guy Claude Rains might consider one of the usual suspects. Farnham is a gadfly who admittedly has handled confidential Apple information on occasion. He has even been known to inhabit garbage dumpsters in search of forbidden knowledge. Someone in Los Angeles gave the FBI the names of three possible suspects, Farnham told me, and I was two of them. But Farnham claims that he was not involved in New Prometheus, and further claims that at times during the previous year, he acted as an unofficial consultant to the company on security matters. No one at Apple would confirm this. The Ward File The second potential suspect, who also denies involvement, was the aforementioned former Apple employee Grady Ward. One morning, FBI agent Stephen Cook visited the 39-year-old engineer and said, We know you did it. The agent had a subpoena for Ward's fingerprints. Why did they consider Ward a suspect? Because, they told him, he was judged the likeliest of five people at Apple who had requested access to the ROM code in the specific release that fell into New Prometheus' hands. The criteria for narrowing it to him? He had since left Apple, he had attended a progressive liberal arts college, and he once formed an intellectual society called Cincinnatus, thus betraying the same fondness for antiquity shown by the name New Prometheus. Did he, in fact, sign out the source code? It was true, he says. I checked out the code and shared it with our group. That was part of our job. Anyone in my manager's organization had access and didn't need permission to see it. How many people were in his group? Hundreds, he says. The source code would go throughout Apple on the Internet network. People could browse through it. You could collect pieces and eventually get the entire operating system. Another former Apple employee concurs that it was no trick for any Apple engineer to copy the so-called crown jewels. And why not? Only by knowing what the code was could people improve upon it. It's like love, says Grady Ward. The more you copy it, the more you have. Precisely the sort of tricky technological fact that the FBI is unlikely to grasp. In any case, Ward provided the fingerprints, as required by law, and he hasn't heard from the FBI since. 
member of the party. The third person directly accused was Walter Horat, a programmer who says he was contracted to do a job at Apple soon after the new Prometheus mailing. Anyway, I had no access to engineering documents, he says, denying any involvement in the crime. This past April, the FBI came to his cubicle at Apple to interview him. He was out sick, and then to his house two days later. They told him there was a witness who overheard him boasting at a party that he was involved in the case. Asked to take a polygraph test, Horat consulted a lawyer and declined the offer. Subsequently, he was fired from Apple with no reason given, he says. Only afterward, reconstructing his conversations with others at the party, did he recall discussing the new Prometheus case. But, he insists, only speculating about it, just as thousands of people do in gossip-driven Silicon Valley. Sorcerer's Apprentices Questions persist in this case, and almost all of them are more perplexing than the identity of the criminal. First is the question of why the FBI has decided that chasing down this particular lawbreaker is more important than, say, using its resources to pursue the estimated thousands of white-collar thieves who sacked the savings and loan institutes and wound up costing taxpayers perhaps a trillion dollars. After all, Apple has managed to stay in business after the theft of the code, and despite the League's promise to the contrary, no further new Prometheus releases have appeared. Quite probably, whoever perpetrated the stunt was intimidated by the unexpected zeal of the investigation and wisely decided to stuff the whole enterprise. Most Silicon Valley observers believe that Apple, perhaps through its outside security firm Kroll Associates, which reportedly employs a number of former G-men, has pressured the FBI into pursuing the case. As put to me by former Apple security head Ken Moore, Part of the function of a corporate security department is to enlist the aid of law enforcement. That's not easy to do. It's not just a matter of picking up the phone. In any case, by encouraging the FBI to go all out on the matter, Apple seems to have unleashed a sorcerer's apprentice on the Macintosh community. The suspect count is rising. Computer writer Stephen Satchel told me that during his interrogatory with the FBI in Reno, Nevada, he managed a peek at an agent's list of potential interviewees and counted about 60 in 39 states. Agent Cook's non-committal comment on this was, maybe even more. Cook quite properly notes that it is a logical standard procedure to conduct a thorough investigation, looking wherever we can to get information. This extends, I guess, to interviewing people just because they attended the hackers' conference, or as other speculation has it, because they participated in discussion on the Well conferencing system. But at what point does the investigation snowball all out of proportion to the crime, which, after all, seemed less a greedy or malicious act than a futile, ultimately silly ideological burst of electronic terrorism? Perhaps the line is crossed when people have to be careful about what they say at parties, because federal agents or their informants, might be listening. Which leads us to a final question. When does an investigation become a witch hunt? <laughs>